postscript of the varieties of religious experience this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the varieties of religious experience by william james postscript in writing my concluding lecture i had to aim so much at simplification that I fear that my general philosophic position received so scant a statement as hardly to be intelligible to some of my readers. I therefore add this epilogue, which must also be so brief as possibly to remedy but little the defect. In a later work I may be enabled to state my position more amply and consequently more clearly. Originality cannot be expected in a field like this, where all the attitudes and tempers that are possible have been exhibited in literature long ago, and where any new writer can immediately be classed under a familiar head. If one should make a division of all thinkers into naturalists and supernaturalists, I should undoubtedly have to go, along with most philosophers, into the supernaturalist branch but there is a crasser and a more refined supernaturalism, and it is to the refined division that most philosophers at the present day belong. If not regular transcendental idealists, they at least obey the Kantian direction enough to bar out ideal entities from interfering causally in the course of phenomenal events. Refined supernaturalism is universalistic supernaturalism, for the crasser variety, piecemeal supernaturalism would perhaps be the better name. It went with that older theology which today is supposed to reign only among uneducated people, or to be found among the few belated professors of the dualisms which Kant is thought to have displaced. It admits miracles and providential leadings, and finds no intellectual difficulty in mixing the ideal and the real worlds together by interpolating influences from the ideal region among the forces that causally determine the real world's details. In this, the refined supernaturalists think that it muddles disparate dimensions of existence. For them, the world of the ideal has no efficient causality and never bursts into the world of phenomena at particular points. The ideal world, for them, is not a world of facts, but only of the meaning of facts. It is a point of view for judging facts. It appertains to a different ology, and inhabits a different dimension of being altogether from that in which existential propositions obtain. It cannot get down upon the flat level of experience and interpolate itself piecemeal between distinct portions of nature, as those who believe for example, in divine aid coming in response to prayer, are bound to think it must. Notwithstanding my own inability to accept either popular Christianity or scholastic theism, I suppose that my belief that in communion with the ideal new forces comes into the world and new departures are made here below, subjects me to being classed among the supernaturalists of the piecemeal or crasser type. Universalistic supernaturalism surrenders, it seems to me, too easily to naturalism. It takes the facts of physical science at their face value and leaves the laws of life 
just as naturalism finds them, with no hope of remedy, in case their fruits are bad. It confines itself to sentiments about life as a whole, sentiments which may be admiring and adoring, but which need not be so, as the existence of systematic pessimism proves. In this universalistic way of taking the ideal world, the essence of practical religion seems to me to evaporate. Both instinctively and for logical reasons, I find it hard to believe that principles can exist which make no difference in facts. Footnote. Transcendental idealism, of course, insists that the ideal world makes this difference, that facts exist. We owe it to the absolute, that we have a world of fact at all. A world of fact, that exactly is the trouble. An entire world is the smallest unit with which the absolute can work, whereas to our finite minds, work for the better ought to be done within this world, setting in at single points. Our difficulties and our ideals are all piecemeal affairs, but the absolute can do no piecework for us, so that all the interests which our poor souls compass raise their heads too late. We should have spoken earlier, prayed for another world absolutely, before this world was born. It is strange, I have heard a friend say, to see this blind corner into which Christian thought has worked itself at last, with its God who can raise no particular weight whatever, who can help us with no private burden, and who is on the side of our enemies as much as he is on our own. Odd evolution from the God of David's Psalms. End footnote. But all facts are particular facts, and the whole interest of the question of God's existence seems to me to lie in the consequences for particulars which that existence may be expected to entail. That no concrete particular of experience should alter its complexion in consequence of a God being there seems to me an incredible proposition, and yet it is the thesis to which implicitly at any rate refined supernaturalism seems to cling it is only with experience and block it says that the absolute maintains relations it condescends to no transactions of detail i am ignorant of buddhism and speak under correction and merely in order the better to describe my general point of view but as I apprehend the Buddhistic doctrine of karma, I agree in principle with it. All supernaturalists admit that facts are under the judgment of higher law, but for Buddhism, as I interpret it, and for religion generally, so far as it remains unweakened by transcendentalist metaphysics, the word judgment here means no such bare academic verdict or platonic appreciation as it means in Vedantic or modern absolutist systems. It carries, on the contrary, execution with it, is in rebus as well as post-rem, and operates causally as partial factor in the total fact. The universe becomes a Gnosticism, pure and simple on any other terms. But this view that judgment and execution go together is that of the crasser supernaturalist way of thinking. So the present volume must, on the whole, be classed with the other expressions of that creed. 
I state the matter thus bluntly, because the current of thought in academic circles runs against me, and I feel like a man who must set his back against an open door quickly if he does not wish to see it closed and locked. In spite of its being so shocking to the reigning intellectual tastes, I believe that a candid consideration of piecemeal supernaturalism and a complete discussion of all its metaphysical bearings will show it to be the hypothesis by which the largest number of legitimate requirements are met. That, of course, would be a program for other books than this. What I now say sufficiently indicates to the philosophic reader the place where I belong. If asked just where the difference in fact which are due to God's existence come in, I should have to say that, in general, I have no hypothesis to offer beyond what the phenomenon of prayerful communion, especially when certain kinds of incursion from the subconscious region take part in, immediately suggests. The appearance is that in this phenomenon something ideal, which in one sense is part of ourselves, and in another sense is not ourselves, actually exerts an influence, raises our center of personal energy, and produces regenerative effects unattainable in other ways. If, then, there be a wider world of being than that of our everyday consciousness, if in it there be forces whose effects on us are intermittent, if one facilitating condition of the effects of the openness of the subliminal door we have the elements of a theory to which the phenomena of religious life lend plausibility. I am so impressed by the importance of these phenomena that I adopt the hypothesis which they so naturally suggest. At these places, at least, I say, it would seem as though transmundane energies, God, if you will, produced immediate effects within the natural world to which the rest of our experience belongs. The difference in natural fact, which most of us would assign as the first difference which the existence of a god ought to make would, I imagine, be personal immortality. Religion, in fact, for the great majority of our own race, means immortality and nothing else. God is the producer of immortality, and whoever has doubts of immortality is written down as an atheist without farther trial. I have said nothing in my lectures about immortality or the belief therein, for to me it seems a secondary point. If our ideals are only cared for in eternity, I do not see why we might not be willing to resign their care to other hands than ours. Yet I sympathize with the urgent impulse to be present ourselves, and in the conflict of impulses, both of them so vague yet both of them noble, I know not how to decide. It seems to me that it is eminently a case for facts to testify. Facts, I think, are yet lacking to prove spirit return, though I have the highest respect for the patient labors of Messrs. Myers, Hodgson, and Hislop, and am somewhat impressed by their favorable conclusions. I consequently leave the matter open, with this brief word to save the reader from a possible perplexity as to why immortality got no mention in the body of this book. The ideal power with which we feel ourselves in connection, the God of ordinary men, is, both by ordinary men and by philosophers, 
endowed with certain of those metaphysical attributes which in the lecture on philosophy i treated with such disrespect he is assumed as a matter of course to be one and only and to be infinite and the notion of many gods is one which hardly any one thinks it worth while to consider and still less to uphold nevertheless in the interests of intellectual clearness i feel bound to say that religious experience as we have studied it cannot be cited as unequivocally supporting the infinitist belief the only thing that is unequivocally testifies to is that we can experience union with something larger than ourselves and in that union find our greatest peace philosophy with its passion for unity and mysticism with its mono-ideistic bent both pass to the limit and identify the something with a unique god who is the all-inclusive soul of the world popular opinion respectful to their authority follows the example which they set meanwhile the practical needs of experiences of religion seem to me sufficiently met by the belief that beyond each man and in a fashion continues with him there exists a larger power which is friendly to him and to his ideals all that the facts require is that the power should be both other and larger than our conscious selves anything larger will do if only it be large enough to trust for the next step it need not be infinite it need not be solitary it might conceivably even be only a larger and more godlike self of which the present self would then be but the mutilated expression and the universe might conceivably be a collection of such selves of different degrees of inclusiveness with no absolute unity realized in it at all thus would a sort of polytheism return upon us a polytheism which i do not on this occasion defend for my only aim at present is to keep the testimony of religious experience clearly within its proper bounds upholders of the monistic view will say to such a polytheism which by the way has always been the real religion of common people and is so still to-day that unless there be one all-inclusive god our guarantee of security is left imperfect in the absolute and in the absolute only all is saved if there be different gods each caring for his part some portion of some of us might not be covered with divine protection and our religious consolation would thus fail to be complete it goes back to what was said in lecture six about the possibility of there being portions of the universe that may irretrievably be lost common sense is less sweeping in its demands that philosophy or mysticism have been wont to be and can suffer the notion of this world being partly saved and partly lost the ordinary moralistic state of mind makes the salvation of the world conditional upon the success with which each unit does its part partial and conditional salvation is in fact a most familiar notion when taken in the abstract the only difficulty being to determine the details some men are even disinterested enough to be willing to be in the unsaved remnant as far as their persons go if only they can be persuaded that their cause will prevail all of us are willing whenever our activity excitement rises sufficiently high 
I think, in fact, that a final philosophy of religion will have to consider the pluralistic hypothesis more seriously than it has hitherto been willing to consider it. For practical life, at any rate, the chance of salvation is enough. No fact in human nature is more characteristic than its willingness to live on a chance. The existence of the chance makes the difference, as Edmund Gurney says, between a life of which the keynote is resignation and a life of which the keynote is hope. But all these statements are unsatisfactory from their brevity, and I can only say that I hope to return to the same questions in another book. End of the Varieties of Religious Experience by William James